last two times we've been in the book of Joshua, we have covered some great, uh, great ground in Joshua's journal as Joshua wrote out these stories. And, and, and sometimes as we read these stories, we forget that these are actually real people. Joshua actually wrote this stuff down. And the first thing we learned in chapter 10 was that God listens to man. The Lord actually listens to man. And that is an awesome thing when you think about that. We usually call this communication prayer. Um, uh, you know, the, and, and for some of us, we just have to bow our heads and close our eyes every time we pray. For others of us, it's just like we can just talk to the Lord through prayer. And it doesn't matter when or how. And uh, we don't have to close our eyes to, to pray to him and so forth. But it's much more than him just listening uh, to our list of things that we desire we want. When we're really tuned into God, we know that prayer, uh, uh, or, or we know what to pray for. And He actually listens to us, and that is an amazing thing. Now, He doesn't always do what we say. I mean, I, I wish He would do everything I would say, but He doesn't. Uh, but He does listen to us. And the second thing that we learned was that He fights for us. The Lord fights for us. And we tend to forget this. We're more comfortable with fighting God with sin and everything else in our life. You know, I've been fighting God all my life, it seems like. But that is now not how it should be. We should be, you know, fighting beside God and with God. Uh, God says that we are on his team. He's not on our team. We are on his team. And that's important. He says, I'm fighting for you. And, he, you know, a lot, oftentimes he says, I've heard the cry of your heart and I've come to fight for you. One of the reasons God has us sleep at night, you know, about half our lives, it seems like, is so that he can kind of get us out of the way. You know, about seven hours every night, God can, you know, kind of put us into a coma in a sense, so, so we're out of his way. And he repairs a lot of the stuff that we messed up, or he sets things in motion. And, and during that time, he also refreshes us. His mercies are new every morning, the scriptures say. And Joshua is living this. And we look and we say... Well, yeah, I mean, of course he's doing this. He's Joshua. But we forget where Joshua come from, uh, came from. He was just a guy minding his own business back in Egypt, and he gets hooked up with this, this crazy guy or this cool mentor, depending on how you look at it. And here we are 40 years later, and God is doing a work through him. And he says to the people, the Lord heard me. And then when the, after the Lord heard him through his prayer, the Lord routed the enemy before him. And, and this is not like a double overtime, very close game, and, and boy, we pulled it off. Yeah, I mean, unbelievable. No, this is the Lord, and he wins so easily when it's his desire. He puts in the third string. He puts in the fourth string angels to, to fight along beside us. And Joshua takes no credit. What an example this is for us. The Lord did this, he says. Yes, we were there, but God did this. In chapter 12, Joshua names 31 kings that he has defeated. And this is incredible. They're, you know, they're the 31 kings out of 32, if you count the defeated eye, that, that, that happened. Wouldn't you love to have an average like that, that, that you could write in chapter 12 of your life and say, these are the battles that the Lord has won for me? We need to be impressed with what Joshua and Israel is doing here. They can be our mentors, and if you look at it like that, as we get into the Word of God, um, you know, uh, oh, that, that I could fight 31 battles or 32 battles and win 31, uh, 31 of them. 
you know, they've, they've actually been in the promised land for seven years at this point. I know last week I kind of messed up the years, and, and I said seven months when I meant seven years. But they've been there for seven years. That we would have seven years of battles like this where we'd win one thing after another after another. That the Lord would be there for us and win and win and win. And then... And then they could stop right there and get real comfortable. They had a lot of land there. They can spread out now. But no, the Lord doesn't have that for them. The Lord wants them to go north and finish the job. And we're like, well, we want to rest. And the Lord's like, no, 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 no. There's more battles for us. Don't dig in and get comfortable here. Don't be satisfied with just a little. I have so much more for you. And the Lord calls us all to not be stagnant. So we continue the story in chapter 11 this morning. And it says, when Jabin, king of Hazor, heard this, he sent word to uh, Jobab, or Jobab, king of Madan, to the kings of Shimron and Ash. Uh, yeah, I'm just going to slaughter all these words. So just you read them in your head and figure them out. And the northern kings who were in the mountains and uh, in the Arbaugh south of Kinnereth, to the western hills and in the Naphoth door on the west and the Canaanites in the east and west to the Amorites, the Hittites, the Pezzarites, the Jebusites in the hill country and to the Hivites below Hermon in the region of Mizpah. They came out with all their troops and large number of horses and chariots, a huge army as numerous as the sands on the seashore. All these kings joined forces and made camp together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. Now, Hazor. Hazor is 25 times larger than Jericho. This is how far they've come in these seven years. Remember when Jericho was not even, they were sort of freaked out, but not completely freaked out. They were hiding behind the wall and they're, they're hollering down at them. They're throwing stuff down at them. They're spitting at them. They're saying all these words. So they're sort of freaked out, but not completely because at least we have the walls. Israelites are kind of feeling dumb because they're just walking along. Just hey, We're just walking around this wall. And here they are seven years later, seven years of fighting battles, seven years of winning, seven years, uh, you know, for everyone in the region to really get scared. I mean, look at the list. All these kings up around the Sea of Galilee area in the northern area, and, and sometimes it's hard to picture the Old Testament in context uh, of what we know when it comes to, you know, we know more about the New Testament than the Old Testament, uh, but these guys are freaking out. This army is huge. I mean, they've gone and got everybody, everybody and their uncle. I mean, they're ready for this. And the feudal lords and kings, they usually fight against each other, but here they're not. Here they all come together to fight against Israel. They're from North Galilee. They're from South Galilee, East and West. I mean, all over from the hills and the rivers and the valleys. They now have guys who know how to fight in all these different terrains. Now, this is an incredible like confederation here. And the Israelites are down on Gilgal, and the runners start showing up. Oh, this group is coming to fight you. And then more runners show up. Oh, this group has joined that group. And all this stuff going on, and the list keeps just building and building and building. Josephus writes 12 centuries later, 
that he guessed the ar- uh, that the army that was coming up against Israel was somewhere around 300,000 men. Now, Israel was also big, but there was a difference. It goes on to scriptures in verse 4 and says, they came out with all the troops and a large number of horses and chariots, a huge army, as numerous as the sand of the seashore. All the kings joined forces and made camp together at the waters of Mimram to fight against Israel. They get organized. And they come down to attack Gilgal. And the Lord you know, tells Joshua, okay, you need to suit up and you need to go north. It's time to fight. And Joshua's probably thinking, how are we going to win this one? I mean, the, you know, just like the last one. How are we going to do this? Because we know that they're going to win, but, but to be there in that situation, I mean, we read the scriptures, we know that they pull it off, but, but to be there, you'd sit there and go, man, I don't, I'm not, you know, I'm sure, but I'm not sure. And you know, it was probably stressing Joshua, you know, out a little bit, not the size of the place. I mean, the flatland was a good place for Israel to fight on. They, they had learned how to do that, but they'd never been five days up north because it was all hills. But I thought they, you know, I think they were probably thinking about this and, and, and started thinking about, wait a second, there's probably somewhere around 20,000 chariots. Josephus says that that is how many they had, 20,000 chariots. That means 40,000 horses. I mean, modern day, I mean, try to, you know, uh, try to put that in context. I mean, that's like 20,000 tanks showing up. Israel doesn't own any chariots. They don't have any. The last chariot that they ever saw is buried at the bottom of the Red Sea as the Egyptians were chasing them. You know, Joshua's got to be praying at this point. I'm sure he's going and going, okay, Lord, what do you want me to do? Five days journey by foot to get there. This is not running all night like the last battle, uh, you know, because everyone is, is coming to this battle. They're all gathering. They're going up against 300,000 men, and these chariots are awesome. These warriors are something else. You know the term, uh, they get you coming and they get you going? That, that comes from chariots, where they would have archers on the chariots, and, and as they were coming, they'd shoot the arrows at you, and as they went by, they would turn around and shoot the arrows at you again. They get you coming, and they get you going. And Joshua's marching along going, okay, Lord, we're only eight hours from the battle here. And you still haven't told me what you're doing. But we don't hear any of this from Joshua. But in verse 6, we get the idea, we hear this, the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. So we know that Joshua was worried and he was talking with God because God came back to him and said, don't be afraid of them. And Joshua's probably like, well, I'm... I'm not afraid. Did I say I was afraid? In our concept of Joshua kind of at this point is no way that he fears them. I mean, look at everything that's happened. All that he's seen the Lord do, there's no way. Then then the Lord said to Joshua, don't be afraid of them in verse 6. So if Joshua isn't afraid, or if he is afraid, he can't show it because everybody else is watching him. They're watching his demeanors, watching his actions something that every leader understands or should understand. You know, he's like, we're fine, we're fine. The Lord's going to take care of us. We're, we're, we're good. We're, we're eight hours away. 
And then he goes back to the Lord. How are we going to do this, Lord? I don't, I don't understand. And the Lord says to the leader, don't be afraid. This is like, and this is what I really like about Joshua. Never says he's afraid, but he shows it. He shows that he talked to God about being afraid. How do I know that? It wouldn't be in the scripture if he didn't talk to God about it. It wouldn't be there. God wouldn't have to come to him and say, don't be afraid. If God says, don't be afraid of someone or to someone, what is going on? Well, <laughs> they're afraid. No matter what level of leadership you're in, uh, you will always get to a point where sometimes you're afraid and you got to get used to that. These people that you admire, those leaders that you just look up to, they, they, they're just further along than you are in the process, whether it's business or whether it's ministry. But don't think for one minute that they've never been afraid of, of certain things. Just because they may not show it doesn't mean that they're not afraid. It is there. It means that, that they're like a Joshua, where they're afraid behind the scenes, but up front they got to put that, that face up, not in a fake way, but just to say, we can do this. God is here. Anyone who's ever accomplished anything in this world has been afraid. And fear can be an isolator for us because we're embarrassed. You have to, to go along and you have to be talking with the Lord about this. And, and, and then as we you know, develop our relationship with the Lord, after a while we find ourselves afraid. And we go, man, I, I thought I wouldn't be like this when I finally got to this part of life. Here Joshua is almost at the biggest battle he has ever fought. And just when he's been celebrating the defeat of the five kings and their five groups that came together against them, there are now at least a dozen more ready to fight. And the Lord is saying, I know you are afraid. Don't be afraid because I am here with you. In verse 6, it says, the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them, because by this time tomorrow, I will hand all of them over to Israel slain. And Joshua kind of looks at the sundial on his arm, you know, the clock, and says, okay, this time tomorrow, you know, 11 o'clock tomorrow, 11.15 tomorrow, you know, and don't you love this? He's very specific here. You are to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. Those things that you're afraid of, you're going to burn them all. You're going to destroy them all. What is amazing to me is this. This would be very unrealistic from our point of view. More than crossing a river, more than Jericho or, or I and defeating the, you know, the last battle where, where five different groups came up against him and he fought them. More than all of that, God has put himself in a box here that we would never allow us to do to him. He, he would not allow that. If Joshua would have said, God, tomorrow at this time, you're going to do this, God might have said, <laughs> no, I'm sorry, you're not in control. But Joshua is walking by faith. God is saying, if you don't do this, or if I don't do this for you tomorrow by this time, then I'm not God. Because when God lays out a promise, he gives that promise. And, and, it's, and it's faithfulness that he gives when he promises us something. Now, I do want to say this. You know, because our reaction would be this. Our reaction would be like, 
great, you're in the promising mood. I got my list, and we pull out our list, and we're like, okay, Lord, I got number one. I, and he's like, well, how long is this going to take? We're like, well, I got a thousand things on my list, and God's just laughing at us, you know. There's many of you that might be watching today that God maybe has never talked to you like this, and that's okay. I would say you just keep walking by faith, keep growing, keep talking to him, and you get to a place with the Lord where you start to understand when the Spirit speaks to you. I wish I could describe how this works, how the Spirit talks to, to me, how the Spirit talks to other people, but it'd be like trying to describe the last 27 years of marriage to my wife. I mean, uh, how do you describe that in, in a little short thing? You know, the things that we just kind of understand and, and we don't really talk about it. It's just we, we automatically know it. We kind of, you know, we uh, never have us play Pictionary on the same team. Why? Because I know what she's fixing to write down. I mean, that's how long we've been married, how long we, I, I just get it. And she's the same way with, with me. So it's kind of unfair, you know. Some words, it's easy to define it. But others, it's kind of hard. You can open up your own Bible and start to walk by faith and keep asking. And when we walk by faith and not by sight, sometimes God will give us the detailed promises like he's given Joshua. Have you ever known that something was going to happen, but you just didn't know how or why you knew? I mean, I knew God was going to take care of us. We went from, from a house that we rented. A, you know, we lived in the Bay Area for a long time, and, and you know, we rented a 2,200-square-foot house, and then we went to a house that we owned. It was a 1,300-square-foot smaller house. I wish I would have kept hold of that thing. It's worth a lot of money today. But then we went to an apartment after we sold that house that was 750 square feet, and I'm thinking, okay, we're going backwards, but that's okay. The Lord's in control. But then I started working for a college, and I went to a place that was 600 square foot. And then my last year at that college, they wanted me to move uh, to a different place on campus that was 400 square feet. This took a period of three years. Then while I was working for the college, I, I felt the Lord leading me to resign. My, my boss was, was ultimately surprised. I knew I would get a job. I'd been kind of thinking about it for a while. I just didn't, you know, nothing had come to fruition yet. But I knew that he wanted me to resign. Now, within one week, seven days, I got a job offer full-time at a church. I found a house in the area that we were going to move to. And we had already signed papers on the house to buy it. So the next week... I met with my boss seven days later, and he couldn't believe all that had happened during that time. When the Lord moves, it can be so sudden. We just have to keep walking by faith, not by what we see. It may look bleak, you know, moving from 2,200 square feet all the way down to 400 square feet. And ironically, my wife is trying to work from home at this point. Uh, but, uh, you know, and you're sitting there thinking, Lord, what? Well, what is happening here? Will I ever get out of this? And you're marching along and, and God is saying, don't be afraid. By tomorrow. Sometimes God gives us details about what will happen. And he did this with Noah. He did this with Abraham. He did this with Joseph and, uh, you know, and Israel and Moses and Pharaoh. All the way to Elijah and Elijah and Jeremiah and Isaiah and Malachi. 
And you're thinking, well, those are all Old Testament, Pastor Allen. Well, you, you know, they must have stopped right there. No, no, no. He did this with John the Baptist. He did this with Mary, with Joseph, with the Apostle John, all the way to Revelations. Sometimes God gives detailed timelines that puts himself in a box. It is more amazing that, that God can look into the future and, and act upon it. Or is it more amazing that Joshua heard the voice of God and followed it without seeing evidence? He walked by faith. We would say that God can do this. But we would hesitate sometimes to act upon what God is trying to do. Why? Because we're looking at ourselves and going, I can't do it. I can't do this. But the thing is, we can do it. With the help of the Holy Spirit who lives within us, we have that help and we can do it. Verse 7, it goes on and says, So Joshua and his whole army came up against, and, and, and they're, they're all going you know, on this five days journey, okay? Uh, so Joshua and his whole army came up against them suddenly at the waters of Mamaron and attacked them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel. They defeated them and pursued them all the way to the greater uh, Sidon, to Meseroth, Meom, and the valley of Mizpah in the east until no survivors were left. Joshua did to them as the Lord had directed. He hamstrung the horses and burned the chariots. At the time, Joshua turned back and captured Hazor and put its king to the sword. Hazor had been the head of all these kingdoms. Everyone in it they put to the sword. They totally destroyed them, not sparing any, anything that breathed, and he burned up Hazor itself. This is incredible what, what they accomplished with God. They attacked and God delivered. So many times, you know, I say I'm going to deliver, and as a pastor, I've heard it all. You know, you go to the hospital or, or visit someone in jail, and, and they've really messed up big time, and, and, and they're saying stuff like, God, if you just get me out of this, I will whatever. You know, I'll do this, I'll do that. And driving home, talking with the Lord, I ask, Lord, did you hear them? And he answers, yes. And I go, will they do it? And he answers, no. What do you want me to do, Lord? And he goes, nothing. You need to stay out of it. That's between me and them. See, we don't deliver for God so often, but God delivers to us. He is our deliverer. Don't promise stuff to God that you because you won't keep it anyway. But you, what you should do is make one good decision after another. And then make another good decision. And then another good decision. Then eventually you're going to look back and go, wow, how did I get here? And it's the small decisions along the way. And the Lord starts to bless you because of those good decisions. And we start to plug into his promises. And we start to follow him into some amazing things, way beyond anything that we could ever imagine. This is what God has for each one of us. God has things that's beyond our imagination that he can do in our lives when we give our lives over to him and take step after step. Now imagine the aftermath of this big battle. I mean, the guys are gathered around, they're sitting there going, man, 40,000 horses, this is great, oh man, we've got horses now, because they haven't had horses yet. And Joshua tells them to hamstring them. In other words, to cut a tendon on, on one of their legs. And we're like, 
you know, Joshua, you know, the people would be like, well, what, Joshua? I don't, I don't, we can't use these like this. And he goes, well, we could still use them, just not for war. See, God is going to give Israel a time of peace, a time to settle into to their new land. And he also burns the chariots. And, and the people are thinking, God, why? come on, don't do this. We can use those. We've got it all figured out. In fact, you know, we've got this, this chariot over here. This, this special chariot's for you. And he's like, no, no, no. <coughs> Put that in the fire. Do you know how intimidating Israel would be with 20,000 chariots? But God wants them to, to, wants them to see his power, his provision, not by their own might, but God, by God's might. David writes 400 years later, some trust in chariots. Some trust in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. I could imagine men saying, could we at least keep a couple of them so we can ride around in them? I've never ridden in a chariot. And he's like, no, 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 no. I want you to burn them all. And he goes on and says in, in verse 15, as Joshua, I mean, as the Lord commanded his servant Moses, so Moses commanded Joshua, and Joshua did it, and he left nothing undone of all the Lord commanded Moses. This is true leadership here. There are layers and levels to Joshua's life as he matures and grows. Moses is dead, um, you know, and, and how come Joshua is still following him? Because we follow those who have gone before us. Or we should, at least if they're godly people. Those strong followers of Christ who have gone before us and who, who have paid the path. And we remember what they teach us and how they taught us. You know, I look back at those who have taught me from my Sunday school years to my junior high years to my high school years to my college years. God has provided leaders in my life to follow. And it's my choice to follow or not. To the mentors after college. I tell you, some of the things that they did, I still do today. True leadership is, is carrying out what a mentor taught you to do. And this is why so many of us flounder in leadership is when God calls us, we don't have a mentor. We need to be looking for mentors. And when God calls us, we need to, to look around and, and we're like, we, we, you know, and we're like, well, what am I called to be? Some of us are called to be great dads. And we're like, but no one taught me how to be a great dad. No one taught me how to, how to take care of, of each other. But God is sitting there going, I can teach you. I can provide people to help lead you in that way. Mimic them, follow them, look at their decisions, and try to make the same type of, you know, same, same type of decisions. You know, I don't talk about this that often, but some of you, your tithes go to help other people in our congregation. Every so often, I'll get a check or a little bit of money with a note. Could you pass this on to, to so-and-so, but don't tell them it came from me. And what a godly blessing that is. And, and I was talking with someone that, that somebody in our church provided to help out with, and they said something great and something sad at the same time. They said, we've never been a part of a church that has done this before. I mean, I was so happy that they were in one now that, that can help them out when, when they needed. But, but part of me was also sad because so many churches don't help out more. 
For some reason, we wait until it's a dire need instead of being proactive. How are we supposed to be generous if no one has been generous with us? We need generous people. We need to start doing these things. Uh, you know, uh, either our mentors have taught us or we become the mentor and teach other people how to do these things, how to be generous, how to be loving, how to be faithful. I mean, we need more marriages that are, that are faithful to the spouses that other people can say, I can do that. And we can go to them and say, look, you know, in my marriage, I used to be this way, but I've learned over the years that that didn't work. And, and now I've changed and I react or act this way. We need wonderful marriages. We need wonderful godly people in this life leading young people. And we're like, but, but Lord, you didn't give me a mentor. And sometimes the Lord goes, yeah, I did, but you ignored them. We need to not ignore the people that God puts in our life to mentor us. Verse 21, it goes on and says, At that time Joshua went and destroyed the Anakites from the hill country, from Hebron, Debir, and Anab, from all the hill country of Judea, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua totally destroyed them and their towns. And we're like, yes, he did this. No Anakites were left in Israelite territory. Then you get to this part. Only in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod, Ashdod did any survive. Now, you might ask, who are the Malachites or Anakites? Do you remember the Anakites? They're the giants. Do you remember the spies from 40 years before where they come out and, and there are these giants in the land called Anakites? And they're like, we can't, we can't do that. They'll go in, they'll crush us like grasshoppers. And here Joshua is 47 years later, and the Anakites come down. And they attacked the giants. And they almost got all of them. They almost got them all. And they think we've won. But the Lord said, destroy all of them. But they left some alone that were outside of their territory. These same families come up against who later? They come up against the Anakites. 400 years later, Saul, the ancestors of, of these Israelites that went to fight, King Saul is sitting in a tent, shaking and afraid. This, this is in 1 Samuel 17. Giants living in Gath with, with, you know, he's coming out, Goliath and his four brothers. 400 years later, a little teenager has to come down and throw a big rock or a little rock and kill one of these guys that should have been killed 400 years ago, his ancestors. He should have never been born because God said, destroy them all. You see, when we don't fight the battle completely, then someone after us will, will, will have to come and fight it for us when it should have been taken care of way back when. But it wasn't. So now we have to deal with that giant. For some of us, that's alcohol. You know, our ancestors kept drinking, kept drinking, and they passed that right down. You know, we've just grown up watching our family drink, so therefore I drink. And, and look at me now, and people are like, yeah, that's not good. Or maybe it's raising our children. We were raised a certain way. We keep raising children that way, and, it, and we keep passing that down generation to generation when we need to break that chain, break that cycle. Hmm. If God has us fighting those giants in our lives, we need to fight them. We need to fight them. We need to defeat them. We need to not stop. 
There's anger, there's divorce, there's adultery, there's addiction, there's false religion, there's low self-esteem, there's child abuse. God wants us to defeat all these giants in our lives. So your children or your children's children or their children don't have to fight them later on. But you have to believe that God can do it for you to be able to do it. And it's time to do that says here in verse 23, so Joshua took the entire land just as the Lord had directed Moses and he gave it to them as an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal divisions and the land had rest from war. This is powerful and this is where we're going to end today. Joshua took, you know, the whole land and then he gave up that land. You will never see a world leader do this, you know, from a conquering king, Joshua eleven twenty three, he conquered everything, and, and you know he has the right to carve out the best of the best for himself. But he doesn't build a palace to himself. No one would have faulted him for for doing that because he's one of the greatest leaders to to ever live. Joshua, you know, they're like, it's time to build something great for you. Just like, you know, just like Egypt did for their leaders. And, and, you know, you can have your own golf course, your own hunting grounds and all that. And Joshua says, no, I'm, a, I, I'm just a, a part of one of these tribes. Divvy up the land to all the tribes like we're supposed to. That's a leader right there. And, of course, Joshua is a picture of Jesus fighting, you know, in the promised land, and, and, you know, for us. And winning and preparing a place for us. And this is so cool. And then it says, the land had rest from war. You will see how things change for Israel. The book changes from this point on. It's a kind of a turning point. They are good fighters. But now they're going to stop and uh, you know, kind of stop talking about their battles. And they get to rest. And those of you who are, who are not fighting battles right now, you've been very patient now that I've, I've given you a, you know, or not that I've given you a choice, because we've been talking about battle after battle after battle. I mean, came into, you know, across the river, and we've just been fighting ever since for 11 chapters here. But there are some of us who have been fighting a lot of battles in our life, and it's like we fight battle after battle, and we hope and pray that he would quickly clean it up for us, because we want some rest. But we also wouldn't know what to do with ourselves. You know, like some guys who retired, they don't know what to do, you know? God wants us to settle down a little bit, but not, uh, you know, but, but not, uh, he, he, he doesn't want us to battle so much. And the Lord wants us to settle down. The Lord wants us to enjoy ministry, enjoy serving him, enjoy life. Everything doesn't have to be a battle in this life. For us as a church, we need to get through the battle. We need to get through that. So we can enjoy the rest and we move forward, enjoy where God has us, and look forward to what, where he wants to take us. Now, for you personally, you have to figure out whether the battles you were in are the ones that you're supposed to be in. Did you just fall into this battle and the Lord's sitting there going, I didn't want you to fight that battle? Or is this a battle that God wants you to, to defeat and, and win and be victorious in? Because not everything has to be a battle. We can't walk into every situation thinking, okay, what should I be taking care of? Where should I battle? You know, where, where, where should I be telling people they're doing something wrong? You know, we never put it into words. We usually say, well, here's a suggestion for you. And that just means, hey, you're doing it wrong and I want you to do it differently. 
when you mean you should be doing it this way. So give your battles over to the Lord. Let the Lord fight them for you and along beside you. And then at the end, he will give you rest. And it's usually one of those things where all of a sudden you're like, wow, you mean the battle's over? What, what, what happened? I mean, is there, any, is there any more coming? Is anybody else out there? And we can either enjoy it or we can go the negative route either way. So we have to figure out what battles does the Lord want us to fight? What battles doesn't he want us to fight? And when's the time to rest? Because the Lord does all three. He prevents us from battling sometimes. He battles right along beside us sometimes. And then he gives us rest and he's right there along enjoying that time with us. Let's pray. Lord, so many of us are fighting battles. So many of us... uh, have been fighting battles for a long time. And Lord, if they're your battles, then, then join us. And, and, uh, and I pray that we lock, walk along beside you as we fight these battles and allow you to control what happens. But Lord, if we're not supposed to be fighting these battles, that you would make that obvious to us. That we can just let that battle go and be with you. But Lord, ultimately, we, we know that one day we'll, we will enjoy eternal peace. But Lord, we also want peace here on earth. We want a time of rest and relaxation in our own lives, Lord. And we pray that, that you can give that to us. That after a certain amount of battles where, where it's your plan, Lord, that, that you would give us that rest, that we could enjoy that uh, with our family and our friends and with you, Lord. We thank you so much for fighting those battles for us. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's faith, uh, face be with you as you battle and as you rest. May his face never turn from you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.